the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Praise to the God who reigns above. They were not to follow after the superstitions of the pagans, nor seek to do good only for themselves. They were to aid their neighbors defend the helpless, and seek justice for wrongs that were done to their fellow man and woman. We continue to see how Israel was to be a distinct nation as we join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 11. Israel is also supposed to be different from the rest of the world around them in their clothing. Look at verse 11. He says, you shall not wear a garment of diverse sorts. It means different material. And then he gives us an example. As of woolen, like sheep's wool, and linen, that's flax, together. They would never mix that together. He says, instead, you shall make you fringes upon the four quarters of your vesture, wherewith you cover yourself. Another pagan superstition would mix different materials, and then they would dedicate that clothing to their gods. Kind of gives a whole new meaning to the phrase power suit, right? Because what they believe, they believe they would fuse that outfit with power. No, and now I'm going to go into my interview, and they're going to have to hire me. And they believed it came with supernatural power from the gods when you would put these two things together. And so it's not that God's against mixing material. That's not what it was about. He didn't want them getting involved in these superstitious ideas. That purpose is clearly stated when we find in the next verse that he tells them what they should wear. He says, remember, you're supposed to make yourself these tassels upon the four quarters, two in the front, two in the back of your vest, your outer garment, wherewith you cover yourself. And that's from Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 through 41. The idea idea was is every time they looked down at those tassels, it was to be a reminder of God's commandments. So their clothing wasn't to be something that made them feel powerful. It wasn't to be something that made them feel influential. I could take on the world or I've got the help of the gods behind me. Their clothing was to remind them of their love for God and what he wanted them to do and how they were supposed to live. They were to be different. It was to remind them to be different than the rest of the world. And it was to give them an opportunity to share why. You know, why do you wear those tassels on your vest? I mean, that's not really in vogue right now. It's not in style. And they would say, well, it's not about that. It's not about being in style or this. We wear it because it reminds us to keep our God's commandments. Why do you have to be remember to keep your God's commandments? Well, our God's different. How's your God different? Let me tell you. You see, it was to be an opportunity to share their faith, to be a light to the world and to remind them to walk with the Lord, to live different because their God was different. We get to verse 13 and we see that they were to not only swim upstream as regards being a good neighbor not only as it means being different than the world, but they were to be swimming upstream in how they viewed marriage and by having a very high, pure view regarding marriage. And so in verse 13, he starts off by talking about how to handle accusations of infidelity. He starts off with those who make a false accusation. That's a big deal. He says, now, if any man takes a wife and goes in unto her and hates her and gives occasion of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Well, then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city in the gate. 
And the damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter unto this man to wife, and he hates her. So lo, he has given occasion of speech against her, saying, I found not your daughter a maid. And yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of that city. Verse 13 and 14, we see here the false accusation is made. It sounds a little violent here. If any man take a wife, it just means to obtain or receive. Remember, marriage was arranged back then, and it was arranged through dowries, through payments. This would be a newly married man who has just recently acquired or obtained his new wife. And it says that he goes in unto her... Uh, has sex with her. And it says, the result is he hates her. Now remember, we've talked about how there's kind of two words in the Hebrew for hate. One is the most common word, which means to love less. But the other one, it means to loathe something or abhor something or to be the enemy of something. It's a far more serious word. That's the word used here. So this is not just a situation where she's loved less. This is a guy who can't stand her and he just wants out of the marriage. And so to get out of the marriage, he decides he's going to accuse her of not being a virgin when he married her. So it says he gives occasion of speech. It means he publicly slanders her by bringing up an evil name, an evil reputation upon her by saying, I took this woman. I gave a dowry for her. I was told she was a virgin and that she'd never been with anybody. And so we were going to make a start as a family. And I went in under her and she wasn't. She was not a maid. You know, she was not a virgin. I've been wronged here. I've been given used goods. Now, why would a man do this? Well, it would give him sympathy in the community if he then divorced her and thus would allow him to secure another marriage contract when he found a girl he did like. And God did not want that. He wanted them to understand that marriage was for life. You know, when we talk about the idea of why it's one man, one woman for life, it says God doesn't want us sleeping with each other. It's just that simple. God designed us to share that experience with one individual for our entire lives, to be one with one person for our entire lives. That's what he designed us to be. It's what he designed marriage to be. So he didn't want these men going, well, you know what? I thought she'd be better than this. You know, I don't like how she is in the bedroom, or I don't like how she cooks, or I don't like this, or I don't like that. And then just to get rid of her and go sleep with somebody else. You know, so if that happens, if he were to make this accusation, it would bring sympathy from the community. And so he could get remarried and no one would look down on it. But that would also ruin her life because no father would take an unfaithful daughter back into his home and no man would ever marry that girl. So she would be homeless, most likely have to be a prostitute for her own provision for the rest of her life if he did this to her. So in a male-dominated culture, which Israel had, this placed a woman at the complete mercy of her husband. She had no recourse if she were innocent of the charges. And so God says, ah, I'm not cool with that. You're not going to do what the rest of the world does as it concerns the marriage commitment. This woman and her family have rights too. And so when that accusation is made and it's a false accusation, mom and dad are supposed to come out and they're to bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity. You say, what is that? Well, in the Middle East, when the marriage was consummated on the wedding night, there would be a special sheet on the marriage bed and it would capture the bloody spots from the first act of sex. And those would be given to her parents as proof of her virginity in case of future accusations. I hope I haven't just given you too much information, but that's just how they did things back then. We do not do that today. Our culture is so different. The way a feminine body works these days because, and just the truth of it is, ladies, you're much more active now than you were back then. So that occurs usually on its own and not from being with someone. Back then, though, that was not the case. This would be a cloth that they would keep in a special place as protection for her so that if she was ever accused, they could bring it out. And so if she is falsely accused, they need to bring that out and bring it unto the elders of the city in the gate. The gate, of course, is where court was held. That's where all legal disputes were settled. And since this is now a civil matter of slander, it means the slanderer had to be brought to justice, not by mom and dad, but by the authorities. When they say this and they lay it out before them, 
Verse 18 says, Then the elders of that city, they shall take that man and they shall chastise him. The word there means to punish, and it most likely meant by a public whipping. He would be whipped publicly, 40 lashes minus one. That's how they did things. But that wasn't the worst of it. It says also, verse 19, And they shall, King James says, immerse him. It means they shall levy a fine against him of a hundred shekels of silver. And he has to give that unto the father of the damsel because he has brought up an evil name, a bad reputation, upon a virgin, a faithful woman of Israel. And you know what? She will be his wife. He cannot put her away all of his days. He can't divorce her until he's dead. That's it. He's got to stay with her the whole time. What's interesting is this amount of a hundred shekels. That's double the amount of the minimum required dowry. So for many men, this would be like paying a triple dowry for their wife. That would be a huge discouragement to any man who would think of falsely accusing his wife just so he could get out of the marriage. And this would encourage men who are in struggling marriages to work on their marriage rather than look for a way out. And even though we don't have these rules, and this isn't what we look for to figure out what we do with marriage, this is God's heart for marriage, even if we don't have these customs today. And so I ask you, you know, are you working hard at making your marriage better? Or are you looking for ways to get out? Are you working hard to make your marriage better? Or are you looking for ways to get out? Don't look for ways to get out. What happens if he isn't lying? What if it's true? What if she had been unfaithful before the marriage? Verse 20. But if this thing be true, and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, well, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die. Why? Because she has wrought folly. She has defied a moral standard. She has done wickedly, is what that means in Israel. What has she done wickedly? To play the whore, to act like a prostitute, to be unfaithful to your spouse. She has done that and she did it in her father's house. That's where it occurred. So that's where she had to be put to death. Here's the reason why they had to do that. So shall you put evil away from among you. See, sex was created by God for the purpose of populating the earth and to be enjoyed by a man and a woman who were united in marriage, period. That's the only place it was to happen. And anytime it occurs outside of that, we are rebelling against God's intent. Sex is to be a giving and unselfish act. So to do so casually before marriage or outside of the marriage contract is to rebel against God's intent. And it constitutes adultery. And because of that, the Lord, the penalty for adultery was capital. So she had to be put to death. Because marriage makes two people one flesh. The intimate act, when it is done correctly, it unites a couple, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. So for a person to turn it into either only a physical or an emotional act diminishes its beauty and makes us no different than animals. We are not animals, folks. The intimate act is not just a physical or emotional act. It encompasses all of the parts of who we are. It's physical, it's emotional, and it's spiritual. Now, if this newly married woman was unfaithful to her betrothed, this violated the commandment against adultery and thus made her actions a capital crime, thus the stoning. Now, you might be thinking, what about the guy who slept with her? Does he get off free? We'll answer that later in the chapter. But now in verse 22, we move, okay, now we've handled accusations of unfaithfulness before the marriage took place when they're engaged. What about unfaithfulness after you're married? Verse 22, and if a man be found lying with a woman who's married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shall you put away evil from Israel. So if they are caught 
in the act, then they're to be put to death. Now, every one of the Ten Commandments had severe consequences when violated. You won't see any capital crimes be something that's not one of the Ten Commandments. They're all related to that. And, you know, most of the Ten Commandments did result in a capital punishment. And this is because they are God's moral laws, and it would put the nation in danger if those people were allowed to remain without being dealt with because God's presence was in their midst, and his presence cannot be in the midst of sin. We come to verse 23 and we close off with how do you handle rape accusations? And this is quite applicable to our day and age. I'm not saying this is how we should handle things, but there are some interesting principles here that I think we should not ignore. He says here in verse 23, now if a damsel that is a virgin is betrothed unto a husband and a man find her in the city and he lie with her, well, then you shall bring them both out under the gate of that city and you shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she didn't cry out being in the city and the man, because he has humbled his neighbor's wife. So shall you put away evil from among you. So this is for an engaged woman, and the action occurs inside the city. Now, what's interesting here, where it says in verse 23, if the damsel that's a virgin be betrothed to a husband, and a man find her. It doesn't mean he finds her and he rapes her. No, no, no. The phrase there, to find her, it means he meets up with her. They're meeting up. Listen, men and women never just intermingled in that culture. That never happened. They were always separate. So for a man and a woman to be alone inside the city like this, it only had two reasons. Either he snuck up on her for the purpose of raping her, or two, they had agreed to meet secretly, which means it was consensual. So in a city, it would be almost impossible, very difficult for rape to go unnoticed. They didn't have noise pollution like we do, nor the means to dull sound like our modern structures do. If she's crying out, she's going to be heard. Homes are right on top of each other. There were not these big, huge, quiet areas in cities. They didn't make space for that because they didn't have room for that. So the idea here is if this happened in the city and he says, if she doesn't cry out, the reason she's put to death is because she didn't cry out. It doesn't mean she just, she didn't cry out in the act. What if he put his hand over her mouth? What if he's beat her or something and you know, she's terrified of crying out and fearing for her life? That's not what this word means. The word crying out means if she did not seek help. So it's not crying out here. It's seeking help by reporting what happened afterwards. Now you might go, well, that's just wrong because this woman, it's not her fault. She's the victim. Can I share a truth with you that may be a little unpopular? Be careful not to place our modern concepts or culture upon scripture. Be very careful because revenge and honor are way different concepts in the Middle East, even today, than they are in our culture. No woman in this culture, in the ancient culture, no woman would hide being victimized from her family. None. None. Which means if she didn't seek help from her brothers or her father, you know, or her family, it meant that the sex was consensual because she didn't want to be found out. There was no shame about being raped. Trust me, being a woman in that society, in that culture, rape happened way more than it does here. And in many cultures, especially pagan cultures, it wasn't considered a crime. And so a woman didn't feel shame from doing that. So the Bible, when it talks about these concepts of her not crying out, gosh, the Bible doesn't care, treats these victims like bad people. No, 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 no. No woman would not report this back then. It was just not the way they did things. So if she didn't seek help, then it meant the sex was consensual which means she can't have accused him of rape after their tryst is discovered so she can get out of the consequences. So she needs to be put to death. Now, he needs to be put to death, it says, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. He had done sin, not just against her, but to his neighbor. He had humiliated, dishonored, and mistreated her. I think it's interesting because when you bring up the topic of premarital sex, 
People often say, oh, but we love each other. Why do we have to wait for marriage if we love each other? I mean, we want to express that love to each other, and this is how we do that. Here's why. Because any sexual activity outside of marriage is taking something that doesn't belong to you yet. It's that simple. You are taking something that doesn't belong to you yet. See, but that's not true. It's very loving. We give ourselves to each other. That's where you're lying to yourself. Because without a marriage commitment that makes you one flesh, you are taking something that belongs only to that person's future spouse, not to you. So when there's no commitment, you have no business taking it. And I don't have time to go into it tonight, but in our scripture reading, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's the passage where Paul says the same thing in the New Testament, where he says, you want to get married. Don't do it like the Gentiles do. Don't follow after your lusts and your desires. Don't want to get more because your desires take over. He says, you do it in holiness and sanctification. You treat that gal with respect and dignity and holiness, and you wait until you're married. That's how he says you should do it. Now, while it didn't speak of the fate of the man back in verse 21, this verse clearly states God's thoughts on the issue, that both the woman and the man are to be dealt with. So the idea is when they find out who it is, the guy, he gets the death penalty too. Now you say, okay, well, but what if a betrothed woman was discovered having sex in an unpopulated area? She couldn't get help then. You're right. And so verse 25, the Lord says, but if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field and the man forces her, and here it's clearly rape, the word there means overpower her, there's no doubt about it, and he lies with her, well, then only the man that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel you shall do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. Now we get a really clear understanding about what God thinks about rape. God equates rape with murder, and he gives it the death penalty. If you've been raped, you need to know that you've done nothing wrong. There's no such thing as she asked for it, or she shouldn't dress like that. God hates rape, and it should never be justified or even understood by anyone. It is a vile perpetration upon a human being that God created and designed to have that experience in love, in gentleness, with someone of her choosing, not by force. And if that's ever happened to you, you do not ever need to blame yourself. You did nothing wrong. It is not your fault. Ladies, different topic. You should dress modestly in obedience to God's word and out of love for him and your fellow man. But men don't ever say, well, they need to do that to keep men off of them. Ladies, you don't need to dress modestly to keep rape from the minds of men. Because men, the fruit of the spirit is self-control. You are not an animal. And blaming a woman's outfit for your lust is just an excuse for those who refuse to take their thoughts captive. Controlling our thought life correctly is how we control our behavior correctly. Amen? Now, in this scenario, the woman would still marry her betrothed and be cared for. It says here in verse 47, for he found her in the field and the betrothed damsel cried and there was none to save her. And so, you know, she can go get married. She's fine. There's no problems there. That woman would be cared for and taken care of. But what about a woman who's raped, who's not engaged? That woman would be considered damaged goods. No one would marry her. So God gives a very interesting civil law to protect the woman in that instance. And it's a little hard to swallow, but understand it from their culture. Verse 28 says, Now if a man find a damsel that's a virgin who is not betrothed, she's single, not committed to anybody, and he lay hold on her, he rapes her, and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, the minimum for a dowry, and she shall be his wife. Because he has humbled her, he may not put her away all of his days." 
Now, you might be thinking, how is that a good thing? Why not kill the rapist like he deserves since God equates rape to murder? Well, remember, their culture is a little bit different than ours. Killing her perpetrator left the woman very vulnerable. She would never marry, therefore never have children, and be considered cursed by her peers. Now, in our culture, the idea of marrying your rapist is horrifying. But to a woman in that culture, it was far more horrifying to be single forever, to never have children, to never have a family. And so God gives a civil law to protect her from that fate. This is not to protect the man. It's to protect her from that fate. And it has serious civil penalties for the perpetrator. So don't let anyone tell you this verse says that God's okay with rape. His words in verse 26 make clear what his heart is towards rape. But like other things, God gave concessions because of the hard hearts of the people. What the people should have done is rallied around its victims, not punish them. They should have said, this is a woman who's worthy to be married. This is a woman who's worthy to be with. But in that culture, even today, they still don't view a woman who's had sex that way. So sadly, that would not happen. So God ensured she would be taken care of. Finally, verse 30, we see here that incest is forbidden and it also includes stepfamily members. It says, a man shall not take his father's wife, and this would be his stepmother in this case, so not a blood relation, nor discover his father's skirt. That's a Hebrew way of saying dishonoring your father by sleeping with his spouse. Incest was forbidden, but Moses makes it clear that not being blood related doesn't make it okay. Marriage boundaries were to be respected, not violated and justified by our twisted minds because it didn't fit certain rules. And you know, that's interesting because Jesus lays that out in Matthew 19, 6, when he says, what God has joined together, how does it end? Let not man put asunder. And so I ask you tonight, do you respect marriage boundaries? Do you respect the boundaries that you've placed upon yourself in your own marriage? Or do you flirt with other people? And do you respect the boundaries of other married people? You know, if you're not married or if you are married, do you respect those boundaries? And are you being faithful in your marriage? We twist a lot of things these days. Well, I'm lonely. I come from an unloved marriage, or I, I have a bad marriage. I cannot say this more clearly. There is no way that God can bless a romantic, intimate relationship that you might have with someone else when you're still married. Is that clear? There's no way. I, I don't care how bad your marriage is. I don't care how it seems like God brought you two together in the work environment and you were, the divorce wasn't finalized yet. There is no way, okay? There is no way. We need to respect marriage boundaries because our culture today doesn't respect them at all. Doesn't respect them at all. We need to be people who do. We need to be different. We need to swim upstream. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you for your word, even though uh, we read a lot of stuff here that does not connect with our culture at all. And yet, Lord, we see some principles here that do give us some guidance into your heart, Lord, that you desire us to be different, being good neighbors, Lord, in, in, in various ways of how we, the world lives, that we're to be different than them, to swim upstream against the flow, and in particular, Lord, in how we, we view marriage and how we respect its boundaries. So, Lord, help us to be committed people to loving our neighbors, being different and unspotted in the world, and to respect the marriage boundaries that we've set up by our own commitments and that you've set up in defining marriage. In Jesus' name, amen. As people that put our faith and our hope in God's Word, we must lay our pride aside and accept the boundaries that He has clearly laid out. We are not God, we are not like Him, and He is not like us. To even come before Him, we must enter on His terms. That means agreeing that sin is sin, wrong is wrong, regardless of the time, place, emotion, or any other excuse we may use to justify our actions. 
He knows what's best for us. All we must do is trust and obey. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.